very much for joining today. My name is Elizabeth Bromley at Go By Beth. I'm the director of the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. I am a psychiatrist and a health services researcher at UCLA and uh, have been supporting the home team uh, as well as E6 outreach uh, in general uh, for a couple of years now. It's been so uh, rewarding to be able to collaborate with you. And uh, today I'm going to talk about the clinical management uh, and assessment of grave disability. The, uh, the presentation today is part two of four parts, uh, a training series that's focused on grave disability. Uh, part one, understanding grave disability, uh, has been delivered a couple of times. We'll do it again. It's available uh, as a recording up on our website. You can view that if you've not uh, yet been able to watch Understanding Grave Disability. And today I'm going to talk about the clinical assessment and management of grave disability, building on what we learned about in part one. And next, uh, later this month, we're going to present part three, Dr. Lashara McGee is going to talk with us about writing and implementing a 5150 hold for grave disability. That takes place on August 26th from 1.30 to 3. And then there'll be a part four as well, which is going to focus on uh, collaborations and partnerships that are needed to uh, uh, work with someone experiencing grave disability. Uh, of note, for those of you who can utilize them, there are CEUs available uh, for this training series. And specifically, today's training is coupled with the training on August 26th. If you complete the both of those together, uh, you, you can receive three CEUs. Uh, so today, you'll see at the end, we don't have an evaluation. We're gonna do an evaluation and a wrap up at the, at the end of part three, because then part two and part three are bundled together for you for CEUs. So that's the overall plan for training. So today what I'm gonna talk with you about uh, is first of all, a review of what we covered in part one, a, a sort of a, a foundational review of the concepts and the definition of grave disability. Uh, then we're gonna talk about clinical assessment, uh, really what are the, the steps involved in assessing for grave disability. And we'll return to a case that we talked about in part one, case of Hector. Uh, we're going to use breakout rooms there. So each of you is going to be, uh, I'll give you some uh, background information about what you'll do in the breakout room, and then you'll go into the rooms and you'll have a dialogue with your group. You'll come back out and we'll have a few groups report back to us uh, what the group discussed. Uh, we'll do that around the case of Hector. And then uh, I'll tell you about two additional cases. Uh, Angela and Frank, and again, we'll have a very brief breakout room after each one so that you, you can work together in a group. Uh, and then finally, I'm going to set the stage for part three by addressing a little bit of uh, clinical management, clinical options for someone who you believe to be gravely disabled. Uh, and we'll uh, prepare you for uh, uh, the material in, in part three, which is about how to write the hold and how to uh, succeed in your treatment plan with that hold for GD. So again, I'll just start with a review of the definition of grave disability. 
So I think we've all experienced some ways of talking about grave disability. Uh, we might have seen or experienced others talking about grave disability in terms of whether or not someone is eating or drinking, whether or not someone is engageable uh, as a client, whether or not someone has a plan to get home, uh, for instance, or a plan for some kind of self-care, um, whether or not someone has survival skills that they know what to do to keep themselves safe, uh, and also whether or not there's a case to be made for this particular client as gravely disabled. So we often find ourselves in a situation where we feel skeptical or pessimistic that an ER or an inpatient unit would conserve someone. And so sometimes we talk about grave disability in terms of could I get a bed for this person? And I just uh, want to remind us that these are not really definitions of grave disability. These aren't the ways that we clinically assess grave disability. Um, these aren't really correct definitions of grave disability. They're just comments on the way that uh, our system works and the kinds of things that, uh, that we contend with in terms of limitations in services for this population. So this is the real definition of grave disability, and it's from, uh, it's from the California LPS Act, which we reviewed in part one, uh, and this wording is very, very helpful. A condition in which a person as a result of a mental disorder is unable to provide for his or her basic personal needs for food, clothing, or shelter. And this becomes the foundation for an evaluation of grave disability. And the framework that I laid out in part one was uh, uh, built off of this uh, uh, policy, uh, this legislative definition of grave, dis grave disability, and it includes really two steps, uh, interpreting your client's motives and assessing his or her abilities. Uh, and this is what we're gonna work with today. So again, this evaluation strategy, it mirrors, builds directly off of the policy language uh, First, we want to understand as a result of a mental disorder, uh, as a phenomenon, and then we want to understand an ability to provide for uh, basic personal needs. So I gave some examples in our first part uh, of, of the training of situations where someone's symptoms uh, of their mental illness, their, their, their disorder, uh, is impacting their ability to meet basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter. So these are just some examples of the kinds of symptoms or phenomena, behaviors you might experience with clients uh, that makes it difficult for them to meet basic needs. So someone may believe that signing their name, oops, sorry, jumping ahead. Someone might believe that signing their name to an application might lead to arrest and that person might refuse to sign or not, not be interested in reviewing any information you have about that application. Another example is that food or clothing that is brought by an outreach team uh, or by uh, bystander passerbys uh, couldn't be used until it's approved. There, there may be some uh, uh, force or presence that the individual believes in that needs to approve any, any, any uh, belongings, any articles that you might bring to that individual and might make it difficult for them to access food or clothing. Uh, other times you might encounter people who believe they have a responsibility, a mission, to stay where they are. So the particular street corner where they're living becomes a place where they have a responsibility to practice surveillance. Uh, and, and for that reason, they are not uh, interested, will not entertain the idea of leaving. 
Um, other times you might encounter individuals who believe that any housing option, any shelter option you might offer for them is sure to be a dangerous one because they've, they've experienced, they believe they've experienced in the past that for instance, the staff and their former board and care were members of a cult. And what they did in the evenings was to hold seances to select which residents in the, in the board and care they were going to torture. You can imagine how these sorts of uh, symptoms might um, make it very difficult for someone to access food, clothing, or shelter. So again, just to review, here's our basic question. Is this person unable to provide for his or her basic personal needs as a result of a mental disorder? Here are some other examples uh, that you, you could encounter. Those individuals over there are, are prison guards. If I move from here, I, uh, I will be executed. Uh, here's Hector's statement to us. I have a solar powered heart and I have to live outside. Uh, I can't go to a shelter because they're run by the KGB uh, and it'd be dangerous for me there. Some other examples. Any questions, comments, thoughts about that review so far? You can put it in the chat. If you're not able to get into the chat, you could also mute yourself and verbalize questions that you have. Okay, great. Yeah, this is a review. This should, if you were in part one, this should feel familiar. So now we're gonna to return to Hector. And uh, here's our story of Hector. Uh, Hector 63, you know him to have a heart condition uh, that he uses methamphetamines. Uh, and there've been reports of unpredictable behavior that can cause conflict with the police and with local businesses. You know he's been living for six years on the street in Santa Monica. You've been involved with Hector for about a month, and he's had two ER visits and a hospital admission at that time, but he left the hospital against medical advice. He usually is very quiet. He doesn't really say much to you. He doesn't really answer your questions in a specific way. Uh, I might mumble something or maybe give you a single repetitive word. It's about it. But you've been able to make some good progress with Hector, been able to apply for benefits, reactivating his debit card, and you were able to get him a hotel room. Uh, he, he didn't stay there long. He was kicked out of his hotel room. Uh, but you've made some progress with Hector for sure. So two weeks later, after leaving his hotel room, you get notice that he's had money put into his account so he can access his debit card, uh, use his debit card to access his money. And you go to see Hector to tell him the news and you find that he has been incontinent of urine and he says he's not taking his heart medications from his hospital visits. He's really pretty angry about being asked to leave the hotel and he's not really very interested in any other options for shelter with you at this time. So you manage to convince Hector that a hotel room is not a bad idea. You just want him to be stable for a few days so you, you, you get a hotel room for him and he's, he moves in, doing just fine there. And, and once he's in the hotel room, you go to a care coordination meeting uh, in, your, in your spa. And a police officer you know there asks you about Hector. Uh, hasn't seen Hector in his usual spot and he wonders how Hector's doing. And you explain that he's been placed in a hotel room and the officer says, oh, I thought he might be in the psych hospital because he told me the other day that surgeons removed his heart 20 years ago he says he carries a solar powered heart in his backpack. 
Now we're going to think about evaluation. These are actually the, the, the typical, usual strategies you use when you're evaluating someone. You're going to use observation, <coughs> excuse me, uh, uh, appearance, behavior, context is something we think about with observation. Context just meaning his environment, the belongings around him, the things that he has nearby, also how he looks, what his behavior is like. Uh, those are things you observe. You're going to listen to Hector and any other client that you're working with, and you're going to do so patiently, uh, often spending a lot of time simply uh, being with the client, co-present, uh, not, not needing to uh, question, but you're going to be persistent in trying to get answers. Uh, and then finally, learning from collaterals in the, in the environment, historical information and behavior, uh, uh, reports of behaviors from others in, uh, around uh, Hector. So that might mean store clerks or people that work in restaurants nearby. So when we're thinking about evaluating grave disability for Hector, we're going to think about these two issues. Are his behaviors a result of mental disorder? And is he able to provide for his basic personal needs? And I'm going to stop here just for a second to highlight a question in the chat. I think many have encountered a Hector. What's more difficult is once he's placed in a safe place, they let him go without any safety plan. Absolutely. It can be um, very challenging to persist with a client like Hector, particularly when it feels like the system is working against us. Uh, uh, I think that is a really important uh, uh, feature here to, to remember, to remember with our colleagues, to acknowledge for one another. Um, what I'm hoping we can do is that you can feel confident about your clinical judgment and about your assessment of what the client needs and what's going on for the client. Uh, you all do that very, very well and including around grave disability. So in those instances where the system is not cooperating, feels quite frustrating, uh, continues to let Hector down, you at least can feel, and you can share this with your colleagues, you can feel like you understand what Hector needs. Uh, that in and of itself can, can be helpful for us, prevent us from becoming too discouraged uh, in situations like this. So one of the things I, I, I begin with here is our next step to Hector. So we're a little worried about Hector. We want to understand this delusion about having his heart in a backpack. So we're going to go talk to Hector. And what we're doing here is this first step of evaluating grave disability, interpreting his motives. What is driving Hector to behave as he does, to live outside, to, to, to carry the things he carries, to not want to be in a hotel room. What's driving Hector? Just to clarify for you, uh, you know, when, we're, when you're working with someone who is delusional, who has a fixed false belief, or who may be psychotic in another way, maybe hearing voices, um, one of the things that won't happen, you won't be able to talk him out of it. So you may go to Hector with a feeling that this idea that he has a solar-powered heart, who could possibly believe that? Maybe if I, Hector, trust me, maybe if I take enough time with Hector, we can walk through the evidence for that, the evidence against that, try to really help him to understand 
that you can't live if someone's taken your heart out. Um, and then having a solar powered heart in your backpack is, is not a thing that anyone's ever encountered before. So not likely to be happening. The truth is this really, this strategy is, is not going to be effective with someone who is delusional. As much as it feels like it ought to work, it just doesn't. Um, so Hector's not going to say to you, you may be right that it's not likely I have a solar powered heart. Um, unfortunately, he just won't come around no matter how much time we have to work with Hector around that issue. The other thing that is not likely to happen is that Hector makes your work easy and he says to you, I'm gravely disabled. I'm delusional. Because of this, I can't take care of myself. Um, here in this second scenario, it's not going to happen. I will die if I live inside for more than three days. My heart needs to run by the sun. Um, I don't need these medicines. Um, in fact, if I take the medicines with the water you give me, my heart is going to stop. You know, occasionally over a long period of time, you get pieces of this. But it really isn't. It, it, it really just doesn't happen that a client makes it quite so clear to you um, why precisely the symptoms make self-care impossible. Um, it'd be a lot easier if that happened more frequently. So what this means for us is that we uh, we are left uh, trying to build for ourselves a good grasp of what's going on for our clients. Uh, so, you know, here, I think these, these kinds of clinical skills are just simply critical in a situation like Hector's. Uh, you may spend a lot of time not doing anything, just sitting there with him. And one of the things I do want to encourage you to try is to try to ask fewer questions um, we're, 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 we're very patient-centered, and we really want to understand that we have permission from people uh, to work with them, to engage with them. We want to try to meet their needs, and, and we're, we, we care about them. So we tend to be quite, we want to be friendly. And, and in a normal circumstance, you would greet someone, how are you doing today? Can I bring you anything? Do you want this water? I can leave it here if you'd like. But sometimes for someone with a lot of internal thoughts, a lot of preoccupations, even ones that are invisible to us, someone like Hector who probably has a lot going on in his head, too many questions are kind of, they can, they can feel like uh, you're taking from people, that you're needing a response from Hector, right? So sometimes it's very helpful to just not ask Hector too many questions. Um, I, I'm sure we've all had those experiences where you're in the flow of doing something, cooking or kind of doing something that requires a lot of your attention. Someone comes in with all the best intentions and says, can I help you? And it just really uh, feels uh, like it interrupts the flow. So I think sometimes just sitting, listening, taking note if Hector says something that doesn't make sense, try to really remember it. You know, sometimes individuals with delusions speak in ways that are uh, quite unusual, and it can be uh, uh, strangely difficult to remember. And, and so to really intentionally uh, try to reinforce for yourself exactly how Hector put the words together, that can be very, very important. 
and uh, I just try to focus on getting clarity around one issue with Hector. Um, it's totally fine to say to him, I, you know, I'm not quite understanding what you're telling me. Could you tell me again? So here's some examples of how things could go with Hector when I go to see him. This is our storyboard, three different alternatives here. I might go see Hector, sit down nearby. Hector, I wonder if you could tell me what you think is going on with your heart. Um, he doesn't really seem to respond much. He says, doing great, doing great. Nothing more comes of that. I might try to say to Hector, gosh, I really, you know, I, I want to I wanna validate, I want to empathize with his emotional experience. Um, I heard that you had your heart removed. That it must be really awful. That must have been terrifying. That must have been frightening. Um, Hector doesn't respond to that. Long time ago, can't say more. I might go to Hector and really give him a message I'm starting to get a little worried. I'm worried about the swelling in your legs. I don't know, do you think we need to go see the doctor again? So these are alternatives for approaching Hector slightly indirectly to see if he might tell you a little more. So what happens though, Hector really can't tell me much more about his delusion, um, about what it means to him to have a heart that he carries in his backpack and the way in which that impacts his self-care. Can't tell me very much about that. So my task then in trying to interpret his motives, what's driving him, is his delusion impacting his choices, his self-care? I need to hypothesize a little bit. I think we can all imagine some possibilities here. You may imagine that the doctors who took his heart out are a set of enemies whose intention is to harm him. What else would you think? Um, and he either needs to flee or he may need to confront them, even a little more concerning if that were to be the case. Does he have to stay outside to stay alive? That's kind of the most obvious uh, interpretation in a way. He believes his heart runs by the sun. Maybe that's why he stays outside. He may even have delusional feelings, thoughts about uh, uh, methamphetamines that, he, that's, that empowers his heart in a way. Um, uh, uh, he may feel that the heart medicines injure his body. So these are all hypotheses. We don't know the right answer. We might be able to explore some of them with Hector, but it's important to give yourself the space to conjecture about what might be motivating Hector, uh, because many of these things could certainly impact his ability to care for himself. Because that is our next question. Can Hector, despite this delusion, take care of himself? Uh, uh, we need to assess his abilities. Um, are his uh, self-care skills impaired enough or distorted enough as a result of his symptoms that he can't care for himself? That's our next question. So we can use all of our assessment skills to think about this, um, this is the ABC of observation. We can see various changes to his body, uh, rashes, wounds, swelling, skin changes, uh, that, that, uh, a weight loss, uh, signs of dehydration, very, very dry lips, um, uh, skin that is uh, uh, sunken, 
things we might be able to observe that tell us that health is impaired. Obviously, we can look at hygiene, whether someone is uh, wearing clothes, wearing clothes as you would expect them to in a safe way. Uh, how does their hair look? How do they smell? Are they attentive to things going on in their body, wounds or things that look painful? Do they, do they respond to that? Um, obviously, also signs of behavioral changes. Are they making uh, eye contact with you, responding to questions? Are they running away from you? Um, are they immobile or oddly positioned for long periods of time? Are they pacing? Uh, none of these signs all by themselves, of course, equate to grave disability, but this is the whole picture that you'll want to attend to when you're trying to decide if Hector can care for himself. Where does he get his food? Where does he use the restroom? Can he interact with anyone in ways that would uh, allow him to access help if he needs it? So of course, the other thing you're going to do for Hector is to look for collateral information, both from his medical records, any of them that you're able to access um, through any of your partners and other systems, hospitalizations, 5150s, has AOT seen him before? Has he been LPS conserved before? Has he ever been followed by an FSP team or by other outpatient mental health providers? What about justice involvement, contact with police? What about regional center? Uh, are there any medical diagnoses? You know a little bit about this with Hector. Other medical diagnoses elsewhere in his chart that help you. And then you wanna ask around locally. Uh, uh, again, issues of food, using the facilities, and then also be sure to ask about safety. You may see Hector big parts of the day, but you don't see him all the time. And it might be that in the middle of the night, he's in the middle of the street and he's yelling in ways that you've never seen him behave. And so asking others in the environment about what they know of Hector can be very helpful. So again, basics of following your clients, both big changes and no changes can be concerning. Big changes, of course, weight loss. Someone is suddenly immobile in a way that they hadn't been before. Um, not changing at all, staying in one place, not moving their body, uh, not changing clothes, not finding shelter. These are significant observations that tell you about whether they're able to care for themselves in the elements. So now we go to see Hector. We wanna think about his ability to care for himself. And what I'll say here is, Remember, you're gonna go into a breakout room and what I'll have you do in the breakout room is make an argument one way or another that Hector is or is not gravely disabled. So you may want to jot down a couple of notes, take a mental note of some of this because uh, you'll use it in your breakout room. So you go to see Hector, um, he really smells strongly of urine in a way that you hadn't noticed the last time you saw him. His pants are very loose. Um, but he's not pulling them up. Pants are covered in stains and dirt, but they're wet as well from his incontinence. He's taken his shoes off, or his shoes have come off, not wearing shoes, very unusual for him. He's got one hospital sock, but it's only halfway up his foot. And his feet look really swollen to you. You're not really sure, are they a lot more swollen before? But boy, I hadn't noticed them quite so big the last time. They're discolored, they're purple, they're red, they have splotches, webs all over them. There's something dark and scaly on one of his feet. Looks like it might be a scab or some kind of ulceration. Uh, and he's got 
four shirts on, lots of clothes. He has some trash stuck to his clothes. His backpack is, is in the gutter. It's not far away, but it's not next to him. Uh, and his belongings are really uh, quite scattered. There's a pristine box of takeout food with utensils sitting on top of it that he hasn't touched. So you go back and you look through his history. You find out long ago in the 90s, he was LPS conserved. Um, you don't know much more than that. He's had no mental health contacts for at least a decade, but he's been 5150 in the past four years eight times and he's had two brief psychiatric hospital stays and he had a diagnosis of schizophrenia at both of those hospital stays and you talk to some of the clerks and the staff around him they know him by sight they'll bring him food at times but he really doesn't respond much to them one of them says to you he looks a lot worse lately doesn't he um he can't really explain very much. He says his things just seem to be more strewn around than usual, and he just wanders. Uh, that's about the best he can do. So here's your challenge. Here's where you uh, need to determine, is, is Hector able to care for himself? Is he accepting food brought to him? Is he more confused than usual? What's going on that he's incontinent? Maybe his feet are more swollen than they used to be. Is he wearing too many clothes? Is he not engaging in a way that he used to be able to? These are the key questions around assessing his abilities. So what we're gonna do now is break up into groups. And what I want you to do, if you end up in an odd numbered group, you're gonna say, yes, Hector is gravely disabled. And I want everyone in the group to make a case for that and think about as a group, First of all, why is, is his behavior uh, the result of a mental disorder? And why does that mean that he's unable to provide for his basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter? So essentially, I just want you as a group to think about this argument here. Yes, Hector is gravely disabled for these two reasons, um, because, because his behavior is determined by his mental disorder, because he's unable to care for himself. Now, if as a group that feels really easy to you, go ahead and decide as a group, what are you gonna do next for Hector? What, what's the, the necessary next step for Hector? That's bonus points, okay? If you end up in an even numbered group, uh, two, four, six, eight, et cetera, um, what you're gonna do in an even numbered group is make the opposite case. Tell us why Hector is not gravely disabled. He does not yet meet these criteria. Uh, uh, for uh, uh, behavior that is driven by his mental disorder uh, or for an inability to provide for his basic needs. Go ahead and make that opposite case that Hector is not gravely disabled. Now, the point here is that you may have your own view. You may feel quite strongly Hector is, of course, gravely disabled, clear as day, right? But you might end up in an even number group and so uh, do the exercise of, of making an argument in the opposite direction. How do we get collaterals like hospitals to give info without a release of info from the client? Uh, let's see, Stephanie, is this a question related to Hector's case in the breakout room here or a general question about mm -hmm. uh, 
So it was a great question that was raised to me through chat from Brenda. Um, and I mean, I know that it could be a specific question to Hector, but Brenda, I don't know if you want to unmute yourself, but I, I think it could also be in general how you might get um, a hospital to share that kind of information if Hector is not necessarily consenting. Brenda? Right. And specifically, um, I think it's harder to get like medical if the client, if the individual was hospitalized or in the ER at a hospital for some sort of medical condition. So, and I know probably some psych hospitals might not want to communicate without a release either, although that might be easier for those that contract with the MH. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, so I suspect there are others on the line who have strategies they've used to uh, access information, for instance, from uh, maybe a DHS hospital. You know, one, one option is the DMH liaison in each of the county hospitals. Private hospitals are a, a slightly different circumstance. I think, Brenda, you're talking about after the fact, so historical information about a hospital stay, is part, part, not when Hector's there, but historically. Yeah. Yes. Well, one of the things that we're working on for specifically for the home teams is to obtain uh, access to ORCID for the DHS hospitals. And there's also a, um, I don't know what, for lack of a better word, a portal called LANES that we can access now that will give you some of that information across the the DHS both contracted and directly operated system. I think we're just trying to work out the kinks. I, I don't think that the lanes, we have access to that through IBIS at this very moment, but um, as Dr. Martinez is looking into it, we're finding it's not real-time information um, about the notes that are existing in the hospital at this, you know, happening in, in this moment. So those things have, are yet to come, but, but I will just say that probably the access, even if we, we get access to ORCID, um, the access will be limited to the medical personnel in our, in our um, teams. Yeah, I think ORCID's gonna be great. One of the problems in service area one, our, both our hospitals are private, so. That's but if they go out of the area, we're good. It's a whole another, uh, <laughs> it's all another ball of wax. Fill you in five. Okay, I'm going to give you 10 minutes there, then we'll come back, all right? Okay, here we go. Uh, who was in a odd-numbered group who wants to report out? Someone in their group who said, yes, Hector's going to be disabled. Here's why we think. He's going to be disabled. Anyone from an odd group want to report out? Uh, George here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, George here. We're in an odd group. I was with uh, Dario Ortega and Stephanie Moon. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, well, um, we say um, yes, he is uh, gravely disabled. And, um, the, the main reason is that um, he has been in that place for six years in the same situation, <clears throat> and he has not makes it, made any changes. Um, he has been not responding to approaches, even though according to what we saw in the, in the drawings, 
he was, uh, the approach was very non-intrusive. The person was actually sitting on the floor, talking to him and offering water and uh, um, even accepting uh, in a way, um, um, I mean, rolling on with his illusions, trying to bring him in and not being, um, <clears throat> um, getting into conflict, contradicting his illusions, which are fixed. Mm -hmm. So um, he's not, it looks like he's not gonna change and he's just deteriorating. He's getting worse, according to even the people that um, see him every day, the, the people in the, in the community, saying that he's getting worse. Um, so he, <clears throat> for the, the motives, he's not gonna go anywhere. His heart needs the sun, that's his source of life. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I got something on my throat. No, no. That's his source of, source of life. And he's not going to go anywhere. He's going to stay here with the sun. And uh, he's actually getting angry with the approaches. And, um, yeah. uh, and also the behavior, the, the, the abilities is that, you know, the, in the picture also we saw the food was somewhere away from him. And he's surrounded by trash. And um, mm -hmm. uh, his legs are getting worse. And um, I, uh, someone made a comment, there's a lot of hectares. And the system is not helping in a way. Um, and um, it depends on, on us to educate the system from now on, you know, as much mm -hmm. as we can, because we find that every day. Um, we're talking um, in the group we have, and we remind us at least two clients, very close situation as uh, Hector. And uh, one of them also has a very swollen leg and uh, it, actually is cracking and dripping on yellow fluid that sometimes and we have sent him to er several times and the maximum two days later he's back in the streets yeah um, and also um psychiatric er's and uh, i mean they just keep recycling him back to the streets and uh, right. um and he goes back to the, exactly the same bench right he sits right. there so it, uh, it is a situation like that. He's not going to change it. So we believe that he, he needs to be conserved at least to give him an opportunity to uh, under medication and under treatment to make the decision on his own. Yes. Right. Okay. Thank you, George. Yeah. So you, you had a pretty succinct argument, actually. First of all, with regard to his motive, he, he thinks the sun makes his heart work. So, you know, that makes him unable to accept shelter and come inside. And then with regard to his ability to care for himself, he's been in this terrible state for six years and nothing has really changed for him. Um, so, so, so that's your argument. That does feel like a good frame for here's, you know, obviously details for each of those, but that, 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 that's it. Um, how about those of you who were in a, even-numbered group. Is there anyone from an even-numbered group who put together an argument that Hector is not gravely disabled, does not meet these criteria, and who would like to tell us about that? I can contribute. I can. Great. I can. Go ahead. Um, I don't know if Hector lacks insight to his medical condition due to a mental illness. Yeah. I, I don't know. That was never mm -hmm. teased out. Mm -hmm. The thing for grave disability is a person has to lack insight. 
and we have to prove that they lack insight to their well-being. Maybe physical, mental, food, water, shelter, everything, does he lack insight? And is it due to a mental illness? Mm -hmm. And until we tease that out, I would call him GDA instead of GD. Mm -hmm. that, that's my argument. Yeah, you could go even further, Anthony, and you could say um, you have some evidence that he is aware of what to do to take care of himself. Right. Um, he, he went into a hotel. He's got his medications with him. Like he right. has an understanding that he needs those medications. For, he's not taking them right now. Um, but he's, he's, he's shown you he can do to take care of himself. So, so you would argue, nope, he's not. We don't, we don't know now that he is. He, he's, uh, he has some ability to care for himself. Great. Any other thoughts, observations, other report outs you all want to add to this? We want, we um, talked about how he does need um, some assistance. So um, obviously, you know, being out in the streets for six years, um, so we would offer um, street medicine and street psychiatry to him. And, um, you know, even though he does have a history of uh, being hospitalized psychiatrically, um, I think it wasn't too recent, right? It had been a while. Right. Yeah, right. It had been, right, four years or something, some, some years back. Yep. So we would offer... Um, street medicine, street psychiatry, hoping that, you know, he would be able to continue where he's obviously, you know, comfortable. He's been there for six years and we can continue with that rapport building and uh, we can maybe submit him to a pilot program to get him the outpatient conservatorship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, you get extra credit. Gabby, this is for uh, <laughs> the next move for Hector. Could he accept psychiatric Did you like that one, Latina? That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so maybe yeah. could he accept meds? Are there some resources you haven't offered him? Could there be a little mental health stabilization that would support him? Uh, maybe so a pilot. We, we want to be mindful of the. We don't want to traumatize him with having you know um, hospitalize him with law enforcement, ambulance, and yeah. that can be kind of traumatizing for some folks. So being mindful of the um, situation, you know, he, he's been there for six years. So, um, and he may have some rapport with uh, some of the staff already coming out. So we can continue that and build on that. So really essential lesson um, that actually we're going to get to toward the end after we think about the cases, um, just because you feel like someone might be gravely disabled, you still have a lot of options. You can just continue to try to work with them where they are, as long as it's safe, see if you can make some progress. Uh, and then you always have other more, uh, uh, you know, more extreme options down the road, but you might want to try things that are uh, uh, easier for, for, for everyone to tolerate first and know that those aren't going to work. Yeah. Um, can I say something? Because I, I think that um, it is very important that there's many hectares. And I, I understand that you want to do a pilot and do a build a report because building the report to me is very critical because most of our people out here, 
they will not give you a minute of their time to even tell you uh, uh, what they're going through. And it's just based on our observations. And this is one of the things that is very critical, even though we see all of this big, um, big red flags around him, but he may be, like we were talking before in our group, he might be vegan. He may not be even eating the food that he's given to him. He may be uh, eating plants, fruits from different places. Mm -hmm. He also may be taking care of, of the sun because he said that his heart was empowered by the sun. Well, he's actually, and um, being talk about uh, environmentally, being able to sustain himself. He knows how to be, take care of himself through the sun, maybe uh, knowing that there is a pile of clothes there. He might be warming up himself at night. Um, I've seen many of these cases where we found places like this and this is the what things they tell us that they're able to sustain themselves until we s continuously see the um the impact physically mm -hmm. that's when mm -hmm. we are able to take in that other steps but some of these clients that we see the physical and the mental deterioration and we get to have great doctors to come out and try to give them shots they won't do it they won't take it and and it has to be to the point when we see them dying till then it, someone steps in and what makes me upset and i keep bringing this up is when they are detained and even though the law enforcement has to be come in and take them inside is that they let them go after 15 days without yeah. none of us being having an input without having our voices be part of that informal support for him this yeah. is the this is the worst critical points that I seen and I understand where we're at at this moment and I like everybody's what they're stating but reality is that many of these hectares is not as easy as we plan it as it, it, as it is for many of them it's not yeah. and yeah and it, 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 it definitely isn't I think um, part of the circumstance we're contending with is um, w w we really haven't had the mechanisms in place to act on a determination of grave disability in a lot of contexts and hospitals too. So that ER, they may know the right thing to do, but they might not have been able to do it for so long. Um, so, you know, we're laying the groundwork for change, the persistence that you all demonstrate, the ability to stick with people, to advocate effectively, as you say, to build a case is really critical to document over time very carefully all the evidence that you have of an inability to care for oneself. That does make a difference. Um, it, it, it's not easy work, absolutely. And it's uh, critical work uh, for all the reasons you're describing because you know the person well. Um, so, you know, I think we're gonna get a little bit later into how to think about different trajectories. I'm gonna quickly go through two cases, um, both of which uh, are intended to feel clearly gravely disabled. And I'm gonna send you back to a breakout room so that you can think about how you would make the case. Now, again, you're thinking about how, what am I gonna write on a 5150? What, how, what am I gonna say when I call the ER to really make a strong case for this individual? So we're gonna first think about Angela, so Angela, young woman, previously in the foster care system. She's been homeless off and on since she was a teenager. She usually looks very disheveled. She has severe psoriasis. So her skin flakes off, uh, covers her sleeping bag, and she scratches her skin 
creates sores on her body. She keeps her skin in the sun all day because she is trying to cure her psoriasis and uh, refuses any mental health treatment. She says she's had a terrible, traumatic experience with medications in another county. You've noticed that she's lost 10 pounds, about 10 pounds. You know, she clearly has lost some weight. Uh, you know her well. So lately, she's really not eating the food that you bring her. She's very wary of it. She picks at it, um, doesn't eat much. And she's doing this thing where she's grimacing at cars as they go by, sometimes going into the intersection where cars are stopped. And when you ask her about this, she tells you it's so the totalizer doesn't kill it. It's so the totalizer doesn't kill it. And you ask her to explain that to Seymour, but she doesn't. You make suggestions for places to stay indoors. She says, no, thanks. I have to keep watch out here. And you've tried for three months and you've had the same negative response from Angela, no change, even when you go at different times of the day. Neighboring businesses know very little about Angela. So this is a summary of Angela. She's 24. She's had a, a previous diagnosis of schizophrenia. She thinks food might be contaminated. She's writing on the sidewalk. She's grimacing at cars. She says some odd things to you about a totalizer. She, she won't accept a bed from you. So I want you to take this information, go in a quick breakout room. We're gonna have slightly bigger breakout rooms and think about Angela and what you would say about her motives and her ability to care for herself. So just to remind you, she's grimacing at cars. She's going out into the middle of the intersection. She's doing something involving the totalizer, maybe not to kill a car uh, or something else. She can't really explain what she's doing with the cars as they pass by. You're noticing she's uh, not eating what you bring her, and you've tried for three months, various members of your team, you've gone to talk to Angela to try to have her accept a shelter bed. She says no. Uh, and there's really no one around her who can tell you very much uh, more about her. So I'm just gonna give you a few minutes in a room together. Uh, uh, so think, both about how you would make a case that her mental illness is shaping her behavior, driving her behavior, and what evidence you have that she's not able to care for herself, okay? And I'm just gonna give you slightly bigger rooms. And there you go. Okay, you should be joining a room momentarily. Does anyone wanna anyone wanna argue that Angela is not gravely disabled? Could, could, does someone wanna make a the the negative case? If someone were to, I think it probably came out of our group. Uh, okay. There was a, a lively <laughs> discussion. 
<laughs> it's more Go of a ahead, Nick. Tell us about it. More R's. Uh, uh, in all honesty, ah. I, I feel like uh, Latina may, may be a better point of contact. I think I was just absorbing the process. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Uh, no, I, I think where we, where we left was we needed more information, right? Because the, there was a, a comment about her not eating fresh food, right? I could argue that my 21-year-old feels the same way. <laughs> um, she's not malnourished, right? Um, so whether or not she would accept any other kind of food other than fresh food, the issue of her running in the street, um, I'll, I'll say it just struck me that in the vignette it said that she runs in the street when the cars are stopped, um, which gave me pause to think, does she yeah, have enough point? discretion to determine whether this is a safe point to enter um, the street or and so therefore I will go and grimace at people at that point and grimacing in and of itself, as I shared with the group, lots of people grimace at me when I drive and I know why they're doing it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that. And then the con like with losing the weight, uh, the 10 pounds, like the question was 10 pounds relative to what? Are we talking 10 pounds? relative to 100 pounds? Are we talking 10 pounds relative to 180 pounds? And was it intentional, not intentional? And yeah. we know that she has this diagnosis of schizophrenia, but don't really know kind of very much about that, like mm -hmm. uh, in terms of where the diagnosis came from. Um, we know that the teams have been out there, but I don't know you know, that, that maybe shelter's been offered, but I, I don't know that there was enough evidence to to definitively say that due to a mental condition, X, Y, Z. Because the mental, the, the diagnosis itself does not really, you know, doesn't mean that she's gravely disabled. Like I said, she's got enough wherewithal to not jump out in the street on a green light, you know? Seems, seems possible, yep. Right, and so much of the decision-making here is about how Angela responds to what we try. Right. And in a, in a context like this, we don't know. We have a static picture, um, and really it is a matter of exploring what happens when we try something. So we need more information from the teams that went out and to gather okay. more information to determine what next steps are, and maybe the next step is a 5150, maybe it's not an application for conservatorship. And I think we would like our bonus points for that one. <laughs> you can have bonus I points, think, that sounds fine. You broke the I think rules. Latina got them. <laughs> I think that can count, but I wanna do one more case. Because <laughs> I think there might have been other groups that had no problem Making a I would case. Love that. Yeah, of course. Angela's gravely disabled. You all took a different strategy, so that's fine. So let's think about Frank. 54, very well known to everyone around him in Los Feliz. No psychiatric history. He's often walking around partially naked. The team has also seen him. Um, You've seen him naked. Others tell you he's naked a lot. He'll take clothes from you, but then he makes bedding out of it or creates sort of like a hat or maybe a, 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 a tarp to cover his things. 
So when you try to ask Frank why he's doing this with the clothes that you bring him, he just walks away. He won't take any food from you. But he does take food from a dumpster outside of a sushi restaurant. That detail just makes my stomach turn. <laughs> but that's what Frank does. He likes the sushi restaurant. He goes to that dumpster after he's fasted for a little while to cleanse his soul. Frank sets small fires in trash cans in order to, quote, protect him from the spiritual realm uh, or from passing pedestrians. Off, sorry, offers his protection from the spiritual realm to passing pedestrians, even more odd and hard to remember. Frank won't tell you anything about himself except his first name, and he has turned down all the services that you'd offered to him. Mental health, primary care, housing, shelter. So he was uh, seen to be missing. He was gone for three or four weeks, not at his usual corner. Comes back, and he seems a lot more disheveled and distressed than you're used to. And he's telling you all, I lit a fire in Escondido and I'm in trouble. And that's all he says about this situation. Was there such a real client uh, or is this sort of all made up? These are all made up. Yeah, these are all imaginary made up clients with, uh, you know, some features that are, are gonna be familiar for us, but uh, uh, all made up. So uh, this is Frank, very isolative. He keeps his urine in a bucket close to his head. And uh, he's not really telling you uh, very much information about himself. Um, he doesn't want to go to a shelter. So please go back in your rooms. Again, just make a case for Frank that he is gravely disabled. Let's say you wanna make a case, all right? Starting small fires, he's refusing food. He, he uses the dumpster, the sushi restaurant. Something about protection from the spiritual realm that he's offering to others. He's disappeared for a while, he comes back, he can't tell you where he was. So we wanna think about in what ways do we know his mental illness? Is driving his behavior? In what ways are we seeing he's unable to provide for his basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter? And if you want to, you can tell us your next move for Frank. And I'm sending you into your rooms for a brief period of minutes. Okay. I imagine you all had a reasonable time thinking about Frank, thinking about an argument for Frank. Um, you can feel free to jump in, but what I do want to talk about, the final few slides here are about exactly this issue that Latina brought up about Angela that maybe also recurred for you about Frank, which is I might feel on Tuesday, come on, Frank is gravely disabled. Clearly, he meets criteria for grave disability. That does not mean on Tuesday I must put him on a hold and hospitalize him. Um, you know, this is just a kind of clinical way of thinking about things here. I don't mean for it to be um, contradictory to the, the clear definition of what grave disability is all about. But as you all are saying, even if there are a lot of the pieces there, 
you have a lot of options. You want to see how someone responds to your intervention. You can see my slides, right? I, I cannot see okay. your fly, fly uh, slides, but one of the things that we were talking about in, in our group is that he is greatly disabled. And, and my concern is the fire starting because not only is he putting his life at threat, but he's putting other people's lives at threat as well. And then the past, uh, we don't have, and this is basically, I don't know about others, but I can speak for myself, that we don't have, sometimes we don't have the mental health past history. And it could be, um, it could go either way. It could, you have a lot of mental health trauma or not. And so this is, but my concern for him to be put at least on a on a hold or maybe be further taken upon is because he's starting yeah. fires and that is a, a high risk, very high risk. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Go ahead. Um, fires, I, I know you said. I, I think we don't know because he doesn't have a mental health history, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have benefits and he goes to a private hospital. It also doesn't mean that we have to tease out, does he have a cognitive issue? Is it something going on? Is it, electro, is it an intellectual disability? Is it, is it uh, Alzheimer's? Is it dementia? What, what's going on? Does the he have a brain tumor that's a yes. impulsivity? Yes. So we have to tease all of that stuff out before we can say he's gravely disabled due to a mental illness. Well, if, he, if we're going to wait for all that long, then if he starts a fire and kills somebody or he kills himself, how are we going to do that? I think that, I mean, we got to look at all this and make sure that we are seeing the real risk here. He is starting fires, whether um, you see it or not, he is. I mean, he might not do it right there in front of us, but let's say you go ahead and you, you give him a, a you want to go ahead and meet up with him tomorrow. Before we meet up tomorrow, he already started a fire and burned a house down, burned somebody down or burned himself. This is my concern. This is where mm -hmm. I have, mm -hmm. have a lot of issues with because a lot of people, just like you stated yourself, all of this comes up, but, 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 but then next day he might have just hurt himself or hurt others. Yeah. And that's the risk yeah. that we're taking. I would say that he would have to go on a hold for danger to self, danger to others for sure, for, for sure. But grave disability, I don't know. I have a question. Now, my question was, what if he is delusional and really ain't making up, making it up that he's setting these fires and really ain't making, doing ah, it? Yep, interesting idea. So yeah. we got to really investigate to see if he really is starting these fires. That's so if he's just awesome. saying yeah, it, then right. we don't know if it's really true. Yeah, in our group, uh, Linda was saying she'd want to check with the sheriff's um, inmate site and maybe in San Diego County to see if if he has been arrested because that's a really good point we don't really know for a fact I guess um, yep. until we get a little bit more information so I love this dialogue this is wonderful very healthy team functioning around grave disability which has a lot of gray area in it a lot of judgment uh, subjective determination it takes a whole set of people um, thinking this through, uh, saying, come on, we got to do it today. Something terrible could happen to this person tonight. We know enough. Someone else saying, you know what, maybe we could just investigate this one thing, give us a little more time. That's the dialogue in all of these cases. These are made up cases with like four facts attached to them, but there's lots to figure out. 
And and so so this is the point here of this slide that you you do have circumstances where you say this person is immediately a danger to themselves. I I just it's not safe here. We've got to go 5150. Try to get them into an ER. Try to make the case as airtight as we possibly can. Not safe any longer. So this gives some examples. You might feel that way. Very what look like acute health issues, um, dangerous behaviors, starting fires could be one of them or just really not making any progress no matter what you try. You might really feel like this, this requires us to go the 5150 route. Um, just a comment on what Anthony brought up, you do not have to know what really is going on, whether it's a mental illness or a brain tumor. It just needs to look enough like a mental disorder that you're concerned the person might be gravely disabled under LPS and you need them evaluated. Um, other times, you've got other things you can try. Medications is one, either through the street psychiatrist, or an urgent care center, as long as a person is, you know, eating, they've got some ability to keep themselves safe. Uh, they're making maybe some progress. They show some uh, judgment. You, as a team, you might decide, let's try some things uh, without going the involuntary route just yet. Really, this is where I'm going to end. It's a couple minutes after three. Um, this is a tool you've created that maps out a little bit of the trajectory available to you. And just to point out today, we were here at this point of assessment. Is this someone I'm going to treat on the street or that I need to move to an involuntary context? And we talked a little about this bottom arm here of street treatment. Uh, you might try uh, street psychiatry, maybe a visit to urgent care, maybe a hotel, maybe some uh, option from the street. You might see that that individual gets a little better. And so you continue without having to rely on a 5150 and uh, a hold. Or the person might not get better and have what's called here continued disability. And you might have to use the ER. Now they might, oops, sorry, they might, <laughs> they might not be admitted to an inpatient unit from the ER, but have another option available to them, like a PUF or crisis residential, some kind of placement. Um, and you might be able to move them back to a least restrictive environment. What we're going to talk about in part three is this upper arm of this map that leads to conservatorship. So this is where really with continued disability, the person does appear to need LPS conservatorship. That's what we'll talk about next week, uh, next week on the 26th, part three, not next week, August 26th in part three of the training. So this is just to reiterate some of the options when you're trying to go the street treatment route, some of the things that could happen, even if someone asks to go into the ER, they might be able to move to crisis residential or rested bed, something like that. Mental health urgent care center is available. Um, uh, they can't put someone on a hold. They can't do some medical things, but they would be able to transfer the person to the ER. Uh, various options, if they're medically cleared in an ER, might be available to your client. A PUF, crisis residential, medical respite, maybe detox. So this is the complex work. Today we really just talked about how do I decide? I'm really concerned about grave disability. At this point, I really need uh, 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 an intervention related to grave disability. And then the hard part comes, how do I explore all of the options that I have for this client? 
So I'm looking at the chat just to see if we have any loose ends. We've left everyone on a, uh, uh, right here at the edge of a cliff with some options for Frank and Angela and Hector. Uh, we don't quite know how they're gonna pick up some of the interventions that, we, that you try. We don't know what's gonna happen to them if they go to the ER. You don't know if the ER will see things in the same way that you do. Uh, but hopefully you feel uh, you can make a strong case and that you can, as a team, consider in a systematic way what you all think together. Any final questions, any final uh, uh, thoughts you have today before we leave this part of the training? I just want to say thank you. These are very well put together and uh, really helpful to conceptualize things, so thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's nice to hear that. And I want to thank you all too, because I like to hear the uh, the pros and cons, you know, people, because this is the reality that we do face on when we are trying to help our, our, our clients. This is actually the reality that we have others that don't believe that they're greatly disabled and others that we do believe that they are. So this is a really good, I like the, the, um, the breakout rooms a lot. Thank you so very much for, for, uh, for this training. Great, we should do it again. This is a complex, very complex, and as everyone is saying, a really big step uh, to, 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 to put someone in a hospital, for instance, to decide that they need to be conserved. Huge step. You wanna feel confident. You wanna feel that everyone on your team has your back around this decision. So we should continue, we all throughout our careers, we continue to, to, to get better at thinking this through together. No, I just want to say that, um, you know, this, this gave me more insight and a better understanding of the direction that the home team is moving. So I appreciate it. You all are going to be the experts on this. <laughs> uh, everyone's going to look to you. This is... Um, you go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you all very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you everyone. All. Thank you for your work. Thank you. Nice, nice to see everybody. everybody.